Good morning. Welcome. It's good to see everybody as you're coming in. And uh, we want you to make sure you have a bulletin. So if you didn't get a bulletin, make sure you get one of those so that you can follow along in the service. Uh, I do want to welcome you. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're glad to have you. And if there's a of your visit, uh, if you want us to follow up with you, uh, we'd be glad to. Just give us a way to contact you, and we'll call. And if you have a prayer request, let us have that, and we'll be sure to pray for you as well. So let us know how we can minister to you, and we're glad that you're here. Let me also say thank you to everyone who helped last week while we were out. I appreciate everybody who filled in and, and helped along the way, and I appreciate uh, Ken Abbott uh, sharing with us. I had a chance to watch that. Uh, uh, I was only traveling for days and days, so I had all kinds of time. Uh, and in some states, you can actually use your phone while you're driving, so it didn't matter. But uh, I appreciate everybody who helped fill in as well. Uh, there is some announcements you'll see on the inside of the cover at the beginning. is in the church fellowship and the activities coming. But I do want to highlight tonight, um, here uh, in the worship service area tonight, we are going to have some special speakers come from Ukraine. They are missionaries, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to them or hear their story, I know they've met in the area and have been in different places, but uh, they're going to be here this evening, right here, and if you would like to come and invite other people to hear them and to listen to them as I understand it, uh, they're serving very similar with what we would call Campus Crusade over in Ukraine, and so it'll be a wonderful time tonight. So you'll see that at 6 o'clock tonight right here in the sanctuary. Uh, please come and let them share with you all that's going on in their ministry uh, in Ukraine as well. So uh, other than that, we do have our Sunday school classes are going. I appreciate everybody who's stepping in to help. I know summertime, everybody's traveling at different times, and that makes it difficult. Uh, but we're doing a great job filling in and helping our teachers as they need it. So thank you for that as well. So it's good to be here again. It's good to be back. Thank you for praying for me as I traveled. Uh, General Assembly went well. And I think we did some great accomplishments in taking some stands on some issues we needed to. Uh, I had a chance to see my mom, and Amara went with me at the last minute. So me and Amara traveled together. Amara got a chance to spend some time with Grandma, and we communicate on a whiteboard uh, in her room. She's, if you didn't know that, she was a, a patient for years with a brain tumor and lost her hearing, but we communicate through texting and different ways. She can hear a little bit, but Amara had a chance to spend some time with her and joke with her and tease with her and meet some of the family out west. So it was a good time for me to have Amara. Uh, we called it our senior trip. Now, I don't, I don't know if that's what every senior looks forward to, uh, but I showed her as much farmland as you could see all the way out west. And the only encouragement I had for my family was their harvest wasn't the only harvest in drought. That it was amazing from here all the way to Kansas there wasn't one combine out there doing the fields. That's how bad it's been and dry. So, folks, pray for our country as a whole because a lot of the farmers and a lot of the mills are, are going to be are searching for grain. And believe it or not, Ukraine, I think, is the number two exporter of wheat in the world, and they're not able to be sending that stuff out. So it's amazing all that's going on in the world today that we need to pray for. So, uh, but it's good to be back. Thanks for praying for me while I was gone. Let me open in a word of prayer. Before I do, let me give you a moment as we read our meditation and prepare our hearts. 
And then I'll lead us in prayer, and if you would join me in the Lord's Prayer together, you'll find it inside your red hymnal if you need that as we pray together. But let's take a moment as we read our meditation. Just listen. Almighty and most merciful God, grant, we beg you, that by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we may be enlightened and strengthened for your worship. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the same Spirit ever, one God, world without end. Amen. Let me lead us to prayer, and then you join me in the Lord's Prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship, to gather together, to glorify your name. Lord, we just come this morning asking that you'll set our minds aside from the worldly things, open our hearts to hear the spiritual things, so that we might leave this place ready to serve you more. And Lord, we just appreciate all that you have done in our hearts, our lives, to prepare this moment for us. And we realize that not only can we sing together, not only can we pray together and give our offerings together, but we can come together uh, before the throne of grace, opened by your son's sacrifice, so that we could pray together as you taught us, saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you're able, please stand with me as I call us to worship. I'll read the light print if you'll join me in the bold print together before we sing, crown him with many crowns. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Amen. You may be seated. And at this time, I'd like to lead us uh, in a pastoral prayer. It's not in your bulletin there till later, but we're going to sing the songs back to back. So I'd like to just take a moment and lead us in our pastoral prayer before we have our confessional prayer together. So let me take a moment and uh, I'll lead us in the pastoral prayer. And then if you'll join me as we uh, pray together and confess our sins, uh, one with another uh, before the throne of grace. And so let me lead us again, if you'll just Join me as I pray for our family. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning to lift up our family individually, members of your church worldwide, but here, Father, together working and serving. Lord, we're praying this morning, uh, asking you to be with all those who are facing uh, surgeries, uh, more surgeries, upcoming surgeries. We pray for uh, the task that's ahead to find the care and those who will be able to show compassion and to minister while they're having surgery, to be able to care for them, bring them food, help them get around. Uh, Father, we just lift up many in our congregation who are not only going through surgeries, but through rehab as they're learning to, to recover and to walk and to get their strength. Uh, Lord, just learning to live daily life again uh, in a different way. Lord, we lift up Roseanne Jones, especially this morning as she works with her family uh, for the funeral tomorrow for her mother, uh, that, Lord, you would bring peace to the family members, uh, that they would be able to join together and, and celebrate uh, the life they shared uh, with mom. Uh, we, we do pray for Phil and Karina 
uh, Lord, that as they discern your will, as they uh, travel to know what it is you want for them, as they return and seek how they can uh, put this together, that, Lord, you would just uh, mold and make them the vessels of honor you want them to be. We continue to pray for uh, Ken's pain uh, that he's experiencing. Give Marilyn the strength uh, daily uh, that she needs to not only be emotional support uh, and the spiritual support that's necessary, but physically uh, to be able to minister. Lord, I, I pray for uh, the Alexander family as a whole. Uh, Lord, we just pray for Tom. Uh, we realize, Lord, that what deems to us to be something tragic and accidental uh, could never be allowed without your personal providential care. And that through this might be the opportunity to share the truths, the most important truths that mean so much more than just the physical life here. Uh, I pray for uh, Zach as he works through that, as he ministers to him, as he continues ministering here, that he can minister to his family as well. We pray for the little fields. Uh, Lord, just continue to give Dick strength. We pray for Dan, uh, Lord, just for his, his back, his neck, his pains, his surgeries, uh, the repeated uh, necessary needs to return over and over. We also pray for Madison, uh, Lord, that you would just be with the doctors, uh, as it's always scary for us uh, when we work with the heart and their conditions. Lord, we, we pray for Vera. We, we pray for continued uh, strength for her and for Bill and Kim as they continue re returning to strength as they work through the cancers and the treatments. And for Sylvia, uh, Jean Foltz, Father, these are all ones in our family that we lift up to you this morning. Father, pastorally, we know that we should be the, the shepherd of the sheep here, but yet we realize you are the great shepherd. You are the one that is able to, to minister through us. Let your grace and your mercy, your compassion be felt through us so that you would get the praise and the glory for it all. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. It's always a blessing to be able to pray for others. If you didn't know, we do have a prayer team that reveals many of our prayer requests through the week. If you'd like to be on that, you need to let us know and you can keep up with those. But we also have a team that prays here every Sunday morning before the service. And uh, if you didn't know that, if you would like to join them, uh, I'll have to see a head nod. But I think it's at nine. Is that right? That the prayer team meets at this meeting at nine o'clock. And uh, so we want you to join that if you're interested in praying. What a blessing. Uh, if you want to overcome something I've learned all the years, whenever you're angry or bitter or upset or have tension with something, just pray for it. It's amazing how God changes things when you're praying for them rather than trying to work against them. But not only do we pray for each other, but we can pray with each other. We, we realize we are all sinners and that we all need God's grace and that we can confess those sins together. And so if you would, in your bulletin, join me as not only we pray for each other, but with each other as we pray this congregational confession of sin. Join me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. Too often we have failed to welcome into our hearts your quickening spirit of love and power. Too often we have spurned the promptings of your Holy Spirit 
and ignored your presence by the Spirit. We are truly sorry and heartily repent. Wash away our sins. Send rain on our dry ground. Inflame our cold hearts and direct our wandering feet into your ways. And all for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And as we confess those sins, the Bible is full of God's grace and mercy, his assurance of grace and pardon. Let me read to you what comes from Acts. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. What a blessing to know that as the Lord calls us, he never shuns us from his grace and mercy. So as we confess together this morning, as a result, our faith in him to others, join with me as we've been sharing through the larger catechism. I'll read the question if as a congregation, let's join together as we share from the larger catechism. What do the words before me in the first commandment specifically teach? The words before me or before my face in the first commandment teach us that God, who sees everything, takes special note of and is very offended by the sin of having any other God. These words emphasize then how important it is to obey this commandment and how disobeying it insolently provokes God. They also urge us to be just as mindful of the fact that God sees everything we do as we are doing things in his service. What is the second commandment? The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What a blessing to know that we do have a God that hates sin but loves us, the sinner. At this time, I'm going to invite our ushers, if they would, come forward as we prepare to take up our offering this morning. And I've asked if uh, our elder Bruce would come and lead us in the prayer as well before he helps with the offering. Heavenly Father, we read in your word, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And we also read, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, as an act of worship, we now return a portion of what you have first given us and render our thanks. Thank you for your grace and all sufficiency in all things at all times. 
Use these tithes and offerings and use us for thy glory and thy kingdom. For we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. No, I uh, am glad to be back. Again, I heard something this morning I've never heard before. Believe that or not, you can be a pastor and not hear things. Believe that or not. But as you all know, we are celebrating Samson Reed uh, Kaufman. Uh, for the first time, little man gets to be big brother to another one. But Lori was sharing with me today when I got here. I thought it was so funny. Now, I've never heard this before. Maybe you have, but I could hear Sean when it was announced that the baby was born and it was a boy, I could hear Sean doing this. Oh, we're going to have to have another one. We're going to have to have another one. We're going to have to have another one. And, but then Lori shares with me, they have just come to the conclusion that the two of them together in all the production of children have the same make and the same model. There's just <laughs> nothing else about it. And I have never heard that one before, but... We are thankful for little Samson, the same make and the same model, uh, five boys. So what a blessing, and we'll get a chance. But pray for her as she recovers and the family as they all adjust to having another one, a uh, little one in the home. We're in the study of Mark. If you're visiting with us, join us in the Gospel of Mark. We're learning all about how fast Mark takes us through journey uh, or this journey of what Jesus is doing. It's all about him. It's not about the things that are happening. It's about Jesus. And this morning, I want you to know that my prayer, being back here, is to share with you that I hope more than anything else, when you leave church, you're always confronted with Jesus. 
whether it's Sunday school class, preaching, or in the prayer rooms, or whether you're just fellowshipping, what separates Christianity from the rest of the world is that Christ should be the center of everything, should be our focus. And Mark, as he's telling us all that Jesus is doing, begins with his first story in action, beginning in verse 21 of the first chapter of Mark. And I'll read there in just a second, but it's the story that picks up at the Sabbath, his visit to the synagogue. It's the time in which uh, I laugh sometimes about how many times uh, people criticize why is church important, why must we do things together, and Bible studies, I like to do things on my own. But isn't it amazing that even when Jesus hit the shores of Galilee and started searching through Capernaum, it was always about the synagogue because it was there on the Sabbath that they would go to the synagogue where it was made up, as you know, of at least 10 men over the age of 13 where they would discuss the scriptures. That's what was happening even in Jesus' day. Now, this wasn't the first event. You could read that through some of the other gospels. Jesus has obviously made his acquaintance known. Mark doesn't give us all those details. He just jumps right in. And fills us in that on this one Sabbath day, Jesus heads down to the synagogue. But this time, it's not just for the scriptures. It's for an exorcism. They're going to get a firsthand teaching and apprenticeship in what it means when Jesus takes control of a person's life. When a person submits to the words of Jesus Christ because that's all they can do. And it's through Jesus that he begins to realize and Mark fills us in and wants us to know that the, the desert defeat that Satan just went through when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness wasn't the end of it. If you remember, we are told in the Gospels that he would show back up at an opportune time. And I'll tell you this, Satan is probably not going to show back up in another desert scene. Let me tell you how he shows up. He shows up with his little minions, we call them today, the demons. And he shows up in the hearts of people. Because the battle is a battle of principalities and powers, of the things present and the things to come. It's the battle that Ephesians tells us about. And Satan knows that God is out to capture the hearts of his children and to draw them back to himself. And so Satan knows that if I'm going to get even with Jesus, I'm going after the hearts of the people. And those demons would take over people. I don't believe that this is just a mental illness. I don't believe that it was just a, a mental uh, failure at the time. I don't think it was just an emotional stance. I do believe that there were actually times in which Jesus exorcised the demons out of people. Because Satan makes it clear there is only one way to win against Jesus, and that's to defeat his church. And the church is made up of what? People. Satan is going to go after you. He wants to take control of the hearts. Why? Because you are only a pawn. I will say that as we get going. Mark is going to show us in the next several chapters that Satan does not really care about you. He doesn't care about anybody. He goes after the hearts of people so that he can surrender them, secure them, and keep them from Jesus. He thinks that he has that power. And if he can destroy your life in the meantime, he doesn't care. And if he can make you feel like you're on top of the world, well, he doesn't care. The point is, he thinks he's got you, and therefore Jesus can't have you. And on this Sabbath, Jesus shows up and makes it clear. I'll have everything the Father gives me, and I will lose nothing, not one. 
and he begins to demonstrate this. First John chapter 4, mark that in your minds. Verse 4 simply says this, we have overcome the falseness of the world, the false prophets. We have overcome the antichrist. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than what? He that is in the world. And he that is in the world is in the hearts of every son of disobedience, every child that does not belong to Jesus Christ. And Jesus' responsibility was to come and restore us to wholeness. So here's how he shares the story. Mark 1.21 says this. Mark says, they went into Capernaum, went being they, the fishermen, the ones that Jesus just had. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, what business do you have with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. After throwing him into convulsions and crying out with a loud voice, the unclean spirit came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding region of Galilee. I want to speak to you this morning on three things. Be patient as I go forward. One of them is his authority and how the world saw Jesus' authority. Number two, on how they saw his superiority over the demons and the things that are there. And finally, I want to speak to you for a moment. Be patient about his notoriety. Now, that's a different term is how we see it today, but let me explain when I get there. First, his authority. It says they were amazed because he was teaching with authority. This is the word exousia in the Greek. It is the word describing the power that Jesus has. It's the very first story that Mark puts before us about him teaching in the synagogue, taking the place where the scribes were. Now, if you would understand the setting of a synagogue real quick, let me just, uh, if I can, in a short way, without going into all the details, the leader of the synagogue would be like an administrator, janitor, and theologian all wrapped in one. It was the person who was over it, saw that everything was accomplished, and helped plan the speakers who would show up in the synagogue and speak to these guys as they discussed. And Jesus obviously had known them, we get from the other Gospels, because when Jesus showed up, it was already planned, and he was ready to stand up and to uh, deliver a message on the Scriptures. So these people were gathering together. The difference was that the, the rabbis, if you wish, the scribes, the leaders that were there teaching, they were the ones that every other time but one in the New Testament, 34 out of 35 times that this word is used to describe these scribes, they are the antagonists of Jesus. These are not the ones that you would think that, hey, they want to know the truth of Scripture. They want to work together with Jesus. They want to unfold the truth to society and let, get the word out so that everybody could learn. That's not what the rest of the Gospels of the New Testament teach. What we learn is that the scribes who are saying they want to learn the Scriptures are actually the antagonists when Jesus shows up. They're the ones that are going to want to debate everything and go against everything 
But his teaching was different. His didache, if you wish, it is the word for teaching. It is not carousone, if you want. Let me tell you that. You may not understand this, but the word for teaching and preaching are two complete separate words. One is for the heralding. And believe it or not, Mark puts us in the place where he says, this man, Jesus, was so different because he came to teach. It is a specific word for teaching, didaske, didaskalos is a word that is used. Not, if you wish to say, the caruso, which is a word for heralding or preaching. You see, our society kind of has it backward today. In Mark's mind, the teaching that would take place was only done by the Messiah, the qualified teacher. Jesus' teaching was with authority. It was so much different than what the scribes had to offer. But the caruso, the preaching, the heralding was done by all the disciples, the followers, and others. Today, we almost have swapped it, have we not? Today, we almost look at it as you've got to have the authority to be one who is preaching, but yet everybody can teach. There is a problem with that. Oh, I want you to be a teacher. We know the Bible even makes it clear that if you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be held to a higher standard because there's going to be people that trust in what you're saying. There's going to be people that look at your life to see what's happening and what you're telling them. The problem is we have a lot of teachers People who have taken seriously the word of God and they want to be a didache. But we have very few people who want to caruso, to herald the truth to others. You know, the problem with the church today is that we're losing ground and it's only become obvious in every survey that is taken, America is becoming more of a mission field than one who sends out missionaries. There are more countries now sending missionaries to the United States than it used to be when we sent them out from the United States. And what is happening in America is that we have twisted the whole story, and we have a lot of people who are interested in teaching, but nobody who wants to what? Share the gospel and herald. That was the word for preaching. It wasn't a systematic pulpit display. It wasn't the wisdom of words that could gain people's understanding. It was the concept that the disciples were given the right to go out and herald, to just preach the word of God, to get it out there, to tell people about what Jesus was doing and how he could change your life. And Mark gives us the story right away, and he said, this is teaching. This is something that needs to be held differently because it has authority. It changes people. Jesus' teaching was different in many ways. You don't have to write all these down, but let me give you a few of the analogies to go with it. Why was Jesus' teaching one with exousia, the word for authority? is because Jesus taught, if you wish, the truth, whereas the scribes would bring their point about by these evasive arguments. Have you ever been in a discussion with someone like that? You tell them the truth, and they're like, yeah, I can see your point, but this is what I think, and then they give them all the reasons why they think that. And sometimes you just want to go, as my roommate would say one time, you can say that if you want to. I mean, your argument is good. It's like circular reasoning. It's like, well, yeah, you're saying this is true and that is true and this is why I do it, but that's not really true. These are just things that you believe, the things that you want to be true. That was the scribes. They would bring up their traditions. They would bring up what other scribes would teach. And so the argument was so different because when Jesus spoke, he spoke the what? The truth. Let me give you an evasive argument in a good way. When one of your six daughters says, Dad, does this look good on me? It's the time for evasive argument. <laughs> well, you know, the dress is really cut well, and I like the color, and it really fits well. And I, I, a lot of people wear those kind of dresses now. The truth would have been what? 
please don't leave the home with that on. <laughs> but we are evasive arguments. We don't get to the truth. Jesus was systematic. He could show you how it fit together. He could show you why it works. He could show you how the heart had failed and why the heart had failed and why he had come and how he come to deliver, whereas the scribes would just ramble on and on and on in their traditions and why you should obey those commandments and how they could be effective in the future and what could maybe come about. And it was this rambling and rambling. Jesus used parables and illustrations. He got personal. Very few times have I ever used a personal illustration to someone where they don't get kind of offended. You come to your pastor to seek some counseling. Pastor, these people are mean. I don't know what's wrong with them. This church has a lot of mean people in it. All I was trying to do was help, and you ought to see the bickering and the arguing that is going on. I said one thing, and they took it as though it was the end of the world, and I'm not even sure how I should address that. It's almost as though... I say one thing, and they're all mad because they think now they have to agree. And it just goes on and on, and all you have to say as a pastor sometimes is, well, do you like to get the things the way you want? Oh, pastor, come on. I mean, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, these people are different than me. I mean, when I want what I want, it's different when they want what they want. And it just becomes this circular reasoning again of how we are much better than others. But Jesus taught with a love for mankind. The scribes did not. I'll tell you why you should come to church. Because you should come to church. Well, what do I get when I come to church? You get the reward of knowing that you came to church. And when you come to church, you can tell everybody else you what? You came to church. We have a lot of people that just what? Come to church. That's how the scribes taught. But Jesus made it clear that when you come to church, the spirit was there. The filling was there. It was the relationship. It was the understanding. I've shared this before. Many of people, I remember my wife one time sharing it years ago. And someone was coming. They were young couples. We were planting the church. And one of the ladies said, oh, I don't know if I'm coming, Pastor. Sometimes with all my kids, I never hear a word that's said. You ever felt that way? And I remember the comment saying this, sometimes you don't come to hear anything. Sometimes you need to come because other people see you coming. And that's the encouragement they need to continue coming. That their life was no different than yours. It's more than just coming to church. It's being the encouragement, the sustenance, and what other people need to be encouraged to follow Christ. Jesus, more than anything, had the authority, not just the acknowledgement of others. We live in a world today where you ought to understand that it's like a book recognition. If you get a book today and flip it over on the back, sometimes you'll have five or six other people who recommend this book, and they're recommended by people who already have books or who are in certain positions. Why? Because who would want to ask Jerry whether or not we recommend this book? Because the next question would be what? Who's what? Who's Jerry? But oh, if, if someone else, if it was a Keller or a Sproul or a, a big writer, well then if they said it was good, it's good. And that's how the scribes worked, where our, our previous scribes said this and our previous fathers said this, and so you ought to do it because they said this. Folks, we live in a world today where even when it comes to teaching the scriptures, sometimes you can sit down and listen to a sermon and sometimes wonder if the only thing you got was a bunch of footnotes. Well, John Owen says this, 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. Let me quote to you the words from our great prayer leaders. And we're, Folks, why do we need to quote men to bring validity to the word of God? That's what Jesus was doing in the synagogue. You had God himself in the flesh speaking to the men. He didn't need to quote anybody else. He could put the power in the word, and it was going to have to be demonstrated. The prophets did no different in the Old Testament. When the prophets showed up, they had one line that prefaced everything. Do you remember what it was? Thus saith what? The Lord. It didn't matter anything else. Who cares if you agreed or disagreed? Who cares if the local institutions wanted to support it or not? All you're told is what matters is this is what God says. And it changes your life. I know you pray for your children. You pray for others to reach your children. You pray for people to be kind to your children. To reach out to them and include them. But does anybody ever speak the words of Scripture to them? Parents, how many have raised your children? Don't raise your hand. On Bible story books. And your children can tell you all the stories of the Bible, but couldn't hardly tell you any of the scriptures word for word. Let me ask you which one means more the words of truth or the stories that society says has just become fables and wonderful helps to live your life. It's the words that matter. His teaching had authority. It brought conviction. Write this down. Conviction brings subscription. It's when you are convicted about something that you begin to subscribe to it. It begins to change your life. It begins to mean something. It moves you forward. It's only when you have conviction that it moves to subscription. You only do what you really want to do. Everything else is an excuse. You can't blame it on anybody else. When it becomes real, it changes your life. All of a sudden, we realize that it's the words of God that are changing these people, not the scribes. Or I could put it this way, it's the words of Scripture, not the words of tradition that make all the difference. They were amazed. It was the words that were there. This was the man. He was God in flesh. He was the one with authority. No wonder why they were astounded, as the word would say. There's two words used in the same passage. They're different, but they're translated the same thing in many versions. One is the word for ethambethason, which is the plural form of those who were amazed. And yet the other word that's first used in verse 22 is the exeplesanto, which is the word for astounded. But they're both translated throughout the Greek interchangeably. Mark throws them in the story to simply say these people were amazed at what he was there to say. When he said something, people listened. You know, we've been talking about the war with Russia and Ukraine and other countries for now over a year. You want me to tell you when it'll really change? When one with authority stands up and tells you what they're about to do. When general, let's just say this, stands up on national news and says, I want the American people to know, speaking for the president, that we're about to enter the war. And now you're listening. 
because it's your children. It's your family. It's now come home. And what's being spoken about is about to change your life and many others. Well, Jesus just brought these people in the synagogue to a war. Because the moment the demon shows up, we are all realizing that the salvation process did not begin on this world in the human realm, but in the cosmic realm, in the battle between Satan and God. And we realize that the hearts of people are now the battlefield in which is raging wild for who's going to be in control. And so all of a sudden, we're all on guard when we go to war. Because who's going to be affected, who's going to be called in, and who's going to die? Well, the war has started, folks. Satan and Jesus have been going at it since the foundation. And the battlefield of our children's hearts are on the line. And the war just keeps bringing death. Because the only battle we have to win is the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? Word of God. And yet we have a bunch of people full of stories to tell rather than scriptural truths. All of a sudden, this authority, let me tell you how this works to understand the word exousia. Why is that word important? Let me bring it into history for you. Do any of you remember the debate that raged back in the early centuries in Nicaea? We came up with the creeds of Nicaea because we battled over the substance of who Jesus was. Do you realize that the word exousia for authority is made up of two words? It's made up of the word ek and the word usia. The word out of me or ex means out of or from and usia means substance or being. And if you were to put them together, when someone talks about authority, we're speaking out of substance, out of being. It would be no different than when Jesus or when God spoke to Moses and he said, when they ask who sent you, you tell them what? I am the substance. It's out of substance that we get authority. It's out of the reality of the existence of what is real and truthful that matters. And if you remember in the Council of Nicaea, they came up with a word because they debated over all these things and they finally decided what kind of authority does Jesus have? What kind of person is he? Do you remember what they came up with? Homoousios, the same authority, the same substance as God. He is God in the flesh. And they recognized this. Man, this man in our synagogue speaks with the same substance of God. He speaks with the same authority as if it were God himself. We're in the presence of one as if it was what? God himself. And what they didn't realize is that's exactly the truth. The authority of Jesus Christ is being revealed. He is the same substance as God. There is nothing superficial about his teaching. It's rooted and grounded in God himself. And they were astounded at this. Let me quickly ask, are you? Are you astounded at what it is Jesus has accomplished? 
or has it become mundane? Has it just come everyday life? All of a sudden, we realize it's not just his authority, it's his superiority. It's the conflict of kingdoms. Let me bring you to this real quickly when all of a sudden the demons... Verse 24, listen to the argument backward. What business do you have with us, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And then Jesus rebukes him. It's the battle that was taking place up until this point. It's this conflict between kingdoms. As we said, the true battlefield didn't begin here. It began in the cosmic realm. It began between Satan and God, between one trying to usurp an authority and one being cast out and given the right to roam this world. And now he has an authority down here to try to usurp the hearts and the authority of mankind so that he can be in control. The battle's been raging, folks. Don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. That's scripture. And all of a sudden we realize his superiority. The demons instantly recognize him. Isn't this ironic that in Mark's story, it's not the disciples who recognize Jesus, it's who? It's the demons. It's the demons who recognize Jesus for who he is. Sometimes that happens even in our world. You're talking to a bunch of lost people, and they come up with a statement like this. I didn't think Christians talked like that. It's like they've recognized how we should be living even before we do. You see, the truth permeates things, and the demons already know the best question. If you wanted to rephrase this about what do you have to do with us, is you could rephrase that to simply say this. The demons were probably looking at Jesus and said this. Have you came all the way from heaven just to get us now? That's kind of the reaction. What do, what, what do you have to do with us? You left the portals of heaven to come here and be in the flesh just so that you could get us? So that you could break us apart? Defeating our father Satan wasn't enough? You now want to diminish all of us, get rid of all of us, destroy us all? That's the argument that's going on. His superiority begins to rule over everything. And we now begin to realize the demons do, that we're on opposite sides of Jesus. Do you recognize the things in your life that are opposite of Jesus? You know, it's amazing, 1 Corinthians 15, I've shared it, I don't know how many times in life, that simply says this, bad company corrupts good morals. That's scripture. That's not dad's way that he wants you to live. That's not how I prefer things. Those are God's words. Bad company corrupts good morals. And now you wonder why your parents don't want you hanging out with certain people. Parents, that's why your children need you not to hang out with certain people. Because it makes a difference all of a sudden we realize, listen to how it goes backward. First of all, have you come to destroy us? First he says this, I know who you are. Have you ever heard that before? Here's the battle that's raging. In the, in the New Testament times and before, the battle of exorcisms was because if there was a false god and you could claim them or get them to admit their name, then you had superiority over them. Jesus shows up and the demons are doing the same thing. They're either going to have to claim authority over him, claim they know who he is, and claim that they know him, therefore he has no power, or he's going to claim authority and they're going to be done. 
That's the battle that's going here. That's the only point about we know who you are. If you don't understand the name game, go clear back to to Genesis. I think it's chapters 32 and following when you get the story of Jacob who wrestles with an angel. Do you remember that? He's trying to run. I could preach a whole sermon on how he's running, and that's why the angel actually hits his hip. He destroys his hip so he can't run, so he can't hide. He has to go face what God has before him. He didn't just destroy his hip for the heck of it. But do you remember why they were wrestling and Jacob said to the angel, do you remember what he said? What is your name? Said to Jacob. He never got it. You see, the custom was, hey, wait a minute. Can I get you to submit by having authority over you? I know who you are. That's no big deal to me. I know who Jesus is. He's just a great teacher. I know who Jesus is. He's one of those Old Testament prophets. He's one of those guys with words of wisdom. I know who Jesus is. That doesn't bother me. It's almost as if you can claim who they are. Some of you might actually do the same thing when someone shows up and says, oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to get my lawyer to do this. Hmm. I won't tell you the whole story, but when my parents divorced, it was a kind of a tight situation, and my mom didn't know what to do, and I was stuck as an 18-year-old trying to figure out what side to help. And they showed up at our house, and my dad and his uh, new girlfriend had said, Shirley, this is what we want you to do, and if you have any questions or problems with what we're doing, then you can speak to us, because I work for a lawyer. And so my mom didn't know what to do. And part of me thought, what do you mean you work for a lawyer? So I said, Mom, all I can tell you to do is go get help. I said, I hate that. My mom was like, I don't want to do this. It's not worth it. She said, Mom, I don't know what else to do. You're going to have to get someone who can help you. So we did. We just simply got in the phone book, called the lawyer that said they worked with domestic problems and divorces, and we showed up at his office, and he said, why are you here? I was about ready to take over that conversation when my mom, in her wisdom, just simply said, I'm getting a divorce, and I was threatened by the other side that since she works for an attorney, we'd better do it, she says. He asked who it was. I won't give you the full name for the sake of talking. Her name was Sharon. And when he recognized the name, he, and he quoted the whole name back, and he said, you talking about Sharon, da 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 and we were like, well, yes. He says, well, hold on one minute. And he gets on the phone, and he calls the law office that she worked for. And his name was John. I'll never forget. He said, hey, John, I got something for you. I said, they're talking. I'm, I'm assembling. He said, hey, when we get together to play tennis tomorrow, I got something I want to talk about. I said, okay, and he explained it, hung up. He said, Shirley, I want you to know this. If she ever claims to have John's authority on herself, just let me know. John and I are tennis partners in the Colorado Springs Racquet Club Tournament, and we are together all the time. And I remember thinking, oh, Lord, what a blessing. <laughs> that may not make sense to you, but you see, the power was if someone can claim someone's name higher than you, it intimidates you. And when all of a sudden my mom realized that this lawyer knew the names of the other lawyer, 
then she was able to just trust that whatever happens will be right. And maybe in your heart this morning, you realize that you need to go through a divorce. You need it. Your heart's been wrenched long enough. And I'm not talking about your earthly spouse. I'm talking about the spiritual war that you've been married to another one and God can't stand it anymore. And he's about to do an exorcism in your life. And you'd better come to grips with what's about to take place. And you'd probably be better off if you would just say, get thee behind me, Satan, because I belong to Jesus. Authority. Superiority. You're not going to win. Why? Because listen to the argument. What are you do? He says this. What business do you have with us? Circle that. I can answer that for you right now. Here's the answer. Absolutely nothing. There is absolutely no business in common between righteousness and unrighteousness. Between light and darkness, between truth and lie, between believer and unbeliever. The scriptures make it clear to us. James even tells us that the demons believe in what? Shudder. Why? Because in the presence of the Holy One, there is nothing that belongs together. There is nothing we have in common. You cannot claim the fellowship with the Father and live in darkness. You cannot claim to have the truth and walk and live a lie. When the demons are claiming, what do you have to do with us? It was an easy answer. Absolutely nothing. Now get out of him. If you were to understand the Greek and its wording, it was simply this. How do you know? He was simply saying this. It's a young generation. Just talk to the hand. Have you ever heard that phrase years ago? <laughs> That's kind of what happened. The demons showed up and they were like, well, who do you say you are? And what do you have to do? with Just talk to the hand. Now get out of him. That's how fast, that's how long the argument took. Because there was nothing in common. You're impeding on what Jesus is going to do, and that's our lives. That's our children and our grandchildren. When they're arguing and they're fussing back and they're doing their things, parents, I'm not giving you advice, but talk to the hand. Now get out. Because it's the type of energy that I can't tell you what to do. I remember when little Brandon was running through the church halls one day. He's just a little kid, and his mom was frustrated. She sat down on the stairs. She started to cry, and I was walking down the hall. I said, what is wrong? And she said, I just had enough. We were planting a church up in Alpena, and the little boy was just a terror. And I said, well, here, let me go talk to him. And I got down there, and I said, look, you really need to go to class and help your mama. He says, I don't want to go. I said, why not? He said, I don't want to. Man, I prayed as hard as I could, and I, I, to this day, Looked down at that little boy, and I said, you're not old enough to get what you want. Now, let's go. <laughs> Marched his little tail right down to the classroom, and I thought, we're not doing this. But when dad was out of town, and mom was doing it all by herself, and he's serving in the military and gone, it was frustrating. But it was one of those cases, speak to the hand, now get out, because we're going. And you need to say that to Satan. You know, you probably don't need to put up with your wife any longer, because... 
It's been hard. You probably don't need your husband around because he's not there. You probably just need to tell your children to find another place. You probably should just tell your parents to butt out. You should. These are all the things Satan says. And you need to be able to say, speak to the hand and get out. Superiority. Do it with Scripture. Let God speak. Let him rebuke. What do you have to do with us? Absolutely nothing. Second Corinthians. Write this down. Put it in your Bible. Keep it. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read this real quick. It's when we're speaking about the use of our bodies and what should be happening and how we should be living. It simply says this. Scripture, not Jerry. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and lawlessness share together? Or what does light have in common with darkness? Or what harmony does Christ have with Belial or demons? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols superiority just who is superior in your life and finally let me just say quickly as he cast him out ex alpha to come out of him the demons had nothing to do but what they could do and it was to simply obey if your heart's ever been pierced by the love of God you have the same attitude Martin Luther had when he said, I cannot recant. It wasn't that he would not, and it wasn't that he should not, but he what? He could not. To know the truth and to do otherwise, there is no fellowship between them. Conviction brings subscription. If you claim to walk in the light, as he is in the light, we must have fellowship with him. Finally, be careful with this, the notoriety. The Bible tells us that immediately, Mark says, that his fame began to spread. I use the term notoriety because it's a term that's actually a negative term that when people are famous for something they shouldn't have done. It's become a term that used to not mean that, but it was famous. If someone was notorious for something, you would think, well, wait a minute, what'd they do wrong? You see, Jesus' fame began to spread, but let me tell you the truth of it. The word, susexteo, which is the word that is used to discuss and debate, is because what Jesus did was not really acceptable to society. Jesus' fame is growing because he just bucked the trend of the scribes. He just challenged the authority of worldly leaders. He just claimed to be superior over the cosmic realm. And everybody's talking about it. As Paul Harvey would say, you know the rest of the story. His notoriety would lead to crucifixion, death, and burial. His fame would begin to spread. Why? Because his words had authority. He came from heaven to seek and to save. You know who he is. 
There's nothing in common in your life with sin and him. He's going to cast out of your life all against him, whatever that may be. It will be cast out. Are you willing to share his notoriety with others? Are you willing to help spread the fire? I know people are going to say it doesn't make sense. I've been there when the people tell you it's debatable. And I lived through a decade of a family that was divided because of it. But I also know it's the truth. And the conviction has led to subscription. And I've surrendered my life to spread the notoriety of Jesus no matter how much hate it brings to others. Are you doing the same? Has Jesus cast out your demons? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us, for giving us your Son. Father, for bringing us assurance in your word that it is your word, it is your works that bring evidence of your words. You are who you claim to be. You show that it is truth. You've changed our hearts, our minds, and our lives. Lord, as you commanded the demons, so command us that we would have nothing to do but obey, that we would be brought into subjection to your will. And that we would spread it like wildfire. Lord, thank you for the authority. Thank you for your superiority in our hearts. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would receive a benediction, and now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And God's children said, Amen. have a great Lord's Day.